Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to Go Get a Podcast episode 16. And today I am honored to have Stan the Rhino efforting on my podcast. Um, professional bodybuilder, professional powerlifter, registered dietitian, coach of uh, literally the strongest man in the world for nutrition as well. So we're going to dive into some really great topics today. So Stan, why don't you go ahead, uh, just introduce yourself for the people that might not know you, which is probably unlikely, but um, why don't you go ahead. Thanks, brother. Not a registered dietitian. I am a oh, oh, science sorry. grad at the University of Oregon. I studied exercise science, but my okay. co-author, Damon McCune, is an RDN PhD, and we've worked hard to make sure that we, uh, we're science-based, so we'll try and stay on topic today that way. But I'm just uh, you know, a, a lifetime athlete that was a 140-pound kid that wanted to get big, you know, picked up a muscle and fitness magazine, and like millions of kids all over the world, I just wanted to be more muscular. I wanted to be jacked and big and strong and we didn't have that information back then that we have now there was no internet and uh, just not very many resources I used to sit up in the science library till midnight scrolling through microfiche and most of your audience probably won't even know what that is but it's kind of kind of back to eight track tapes which probably before much of your time also but uh, and so I, I just I made a lot of mistakes along the way and now what I do mostly with the vertical diets and the athletes that I work with is just to try and help them, uh, you know, make progress better and not make the same mistakes and fix some things that might be impeding performance. So that's kind of what brings me to where I'm at today, just full time out there trying to, to get my message out and help uh, not just athletes, but normal folks, you know, dad bods and soccer moms change their lives, improve their health, body composition, sleep, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And before we get right into the topic, so I kind of want to know a little bit of background. So you said that you were a 140 pound kid and uh, you kind of just wanted to get bigger and you saw these magazines. So can you go a little bit more in depth with uh, your story about how you kind of started getting into lifting? That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old. I weighed 140 pounds. I was a soccer player. and uh, I just wanted to get bigger. So I started lifting weights and I thought that, you know, you got bigger by lifting weights and it wasn't for, you know, a while that I didn't learn that, that really you grow outside the gym. Uh, the eating and the sleeping is the most important component. And so uh, I just at one point was able to flip the script. I started training a little less, a little more, uh, uh, a little smarter. And then I started eating more and sleeping more. And that's really been my biggest discipline over the years. I always tell everybody my success in powerlifting and bodybuilding is not about what I did in the gym. It's what I did outside the gym. And I was extremely disciplined. Everybody who's ever known me for three decades knows that I was always in bed by 10 o'clock, my uh, chariot turned into a pumpkin at 10 p.m. and I had to be down. And they also know that I carried meals everywhere I went, from college in my book pack, in my backpack, to uh, work, to you know everything that everywhere I go, I've always had meals in tote uh, to try and grow. Because I was a hard gainer, a very hard gainer. I never packed on 30 pounds in a year. I was lucky to get 10. Uh, it took me over 10 years to to uh, put on a significant amount of mass to where I can start powerlifting. So, uh, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm just trying to help expedite that process for people and, um, you know, minimize a lot of the mistakes that folks make. Mm -hmm. And when you first started lifting, was it more of a form of uh, powerlifting or would you say bodybuilding? Cause I know you're a hybrid athlete, but I'm just wondering which, which one was your first and then when did you transition into the other? I did primarily believe that the heavier I lifted, the bigger I would get. And, it, and I didn't discover for many, many years that, uh, in fact, that was probably not the best way to get big. And uh, now we have the science to support that, that, um, you know, the hypertrophy ranges, uh, you know, the, the big heavy singles and doubles and triples don't lend uh, very well to hypertrophy. I know you can grow, uh, you get the same hypertrophy benefit from sets of six with a heavy load, say 85% as you do from sets of eight to 12 with a 70% load as you do from uh, sets of 20 with a 50% load. We get equivalent hypertrophy outcomes. But what we see in the research is that there's a lot more fatigue in the uh, six rep heavies and the 20 rep. Uh, and those people tend to drop out a little quicker from uh, the studies. And so there really is an optimal range in the eight to 12 rep range, maybe incorporate a couple of heavies, maybe incorporate finishing with a 20 rep set, but ideally the bulk of your work should be in that eight to 12 range with about 70% of your one rep max and uh, train everything twice a week, train within a rep or two of failure, uh, be consistent and stay healthy and injury free. And uh, you know, just keep compounding the gains over the years, but you have to actually, you always have to have some sort of progression designed into your program to where 
you're lifting, a, you know, an extra set, a couple extra reps, a few extra pounds, uh, one or more of those controllable uh, progressions over the course of many months. And then when you plateau, you got to kind of switch things up, find a new lead exercise, maybe switch to a strength block, uh, but be really careful with fatigue and uh, make sure that you're recovering from, from workouts because that, uh, that can definitely impair performance and cause injuries and uh, illness and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And are you a fan of the way, because I know you're, you and Michael Hearn are uh, good friends, correct? Yes. Yeah. And um, I'm just wondering, so he has the training method of, you know, training heavy in the beginning and then going to uh, bodybuilding movements. And you said like more, the, for, you said the more optimal range is honestly eight to 12 with about 70% rep work. So would you agree with incorporating heavier movements in the beginning, like more of your power movements and then going to the hypertrophy stuff? Or are you just saying, uh, stick to 70% of your max throughout the exercises for optimal recovery. Yeah, I might have sped through that, but I'd say keep the bulk of your reps in the 8 to 12 rep range with the 70% load. And then maybe once a, one of your two workouts a week, you'll throw in two top sets of five. And on the other workout, you'll throw in a, a couple of finishing sets uh, of 20 reps. So, yeah, I, I do like to touch some heavy stuff every now and then, a three to five rep range. Uh, but not as often, maybe once a week, and uh, uh, not the bulk of the volume that I create in the workout. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got you, I got you. And uh, now let's dive into it. So I want to know, when did you create the vertical diet? And what makes it different from compared to these other diets coming out these days? Because you know, there's a new, there's a new one every week, you know, so yeah, what makes yours different? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I've been using this same diet plan with my athletes and clients for over 10 years. It's kind of the culmination of everything I've learned from 30 years of competing, college, coaching, being coached, uh, you know, collaborating with other athletes and uh, mentors and professionals and industry doctors and uh, PhDs. And what I did is I, I just started writing down every single thing that I thought was important for me and for my athletes to know when they start a program. So it became, you know, really comprehensive over time. It, uh, uh, you know, it's not just diet. It, I included information on optimizing sleep, on hydration, on, of course, nutrition, digestion, uh, blood testing. We, we try and get blood tests on our, our clients blood pressure and blood sugar, how to control those and to optimize those, uh, uh, the optimal amount and type of cardio, hypertrophy and strength training. Um, and it's a very specific program because my clients want me to tell them exactly what to eat and exactly what to do when they're training. And, uh, you know, I, I start them with menu plans and um, uh, grocery shopping lists. I just try to make it easy on them because this isn't their career. Their career might be, uh, you know, something very different or their sport might be their focus in their sport specific training. And they just need me to take care of that for them. So I've used this for about 10 years with my clients. About three years ago, I branded it instead of it just being Stan Efferding's program. Uh, I, I branded it as the vertical diet uh, where I built a foundation of highly micronutrient dense, uh, highly bioavailable, easy to digest foods. And I've said you can't put a three bedroom house on a two bedroom foundation. So I create a very healthy foundation uh, of food so that you can, um, you know, whether you're a 400 pound person or whether you're a CrossFitter that's training twice a day or a UFC fighter, or, uh, somebody like that, uh, that you can support uh, the kind of workload necessary. And then you got to fuel that of course, with uh, extra calories just for the workload itself or to maintain the mass. So uh, I, I, I've been adding to it uh, over the course of the many years. I, I started out as a vertical at 1.0 and then 2.0 as I got feedback from clients as to more information that they wanted or needed or questions that they asked that weren't answered. And then ultimately now the vertical diet 3.0, which is, is you know, in great detail and very comprehensive over 220 pages with over 200 scientific references to peer reviewed published research, articles, videos. Um, of course, I brought Damon McCune, a PhD, a registered dietitian, was head of the dietetic department at UNLV and uh, we went over it with a fine-tooth comb and made sure it was all science-based. and uh, So it's, it's been very, very effective. Uh, it, it, it's not a book about dieting, although I put a lot of information in there to help people understand the, the concepts. It's a very specific plan. I tell people I give them checklists and tell them exactly what to do step-by-step step, uh, through the whole program. Mm -hmm. And what I love about the vertical diet is that it's, it's one of the realest diets on the market. It really advertises like, look, 
you should be doing this as a lifestyle change because like you said, it's not just about the dieting. It's about the sleeping. It's about the recovery. It's about post-workout, pre-workout. It's about all that stuff. It's not one of these quick fix things that all these, you know, people try to sell and uh, people kept, keep temporary results, but this is for increasing your performance and living a healthier lifestyle, correct? Yeah, hundred percent. The best diet is the one you'll follow. It does have to be a, a lifestyle. I, I, I've often said that compliance is the science. And so I designed the diet to be simple, sensible, and sustainable so that people can actually follow it long-term. You asked me what's different about this diet than others on the market. And really what's different was in the industry in, in the competitive industry, first and foremost, the guru diets, the bikini diets that are quite popular in, in the bodybuilding figure physique bikini industry. Uh, were woefully deficient in micronutrients and caused a lot of digestion issues. And so uh, I intended to remedy that. Uh, we find that a lot of those women suffer from uh, the female triad, amenorrhea, um, uh, osteoporosis, uh, anemia, you know, low iron, um, uh, hypothyroidism, hair falling out. And, and so we see that very, very common in the industry. And the general population doesn't see that. They, they just see the women on stage in the best shape of their life. And they think that, that they should follow their diets. And they don't realize behind the scenes, these poor girls are a wreck. Um, you know, they're suffering from depression. They, uh, immediately after the show, they end up at the doctor's office. They've got water retention and massive amounts of, uh, of fat regain. And, and they need the micronutrient deficiencies, vitamin D, iron, as I mentioned, B12 getting shots from the doctor for these things. So uh, it's different from the dieter's diet in that I include a really hearty, uh, like I said, um, micronutrient dense, highly bioavailable, easy to digest food choices. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I find a lot of athletes just go hog wild and hog is the right term to use uh, to gain mass. Uh, they just overfeed and they overfeed on the wrong kinds of foods. Uh, and that's where the, the strong men and the power lifters and the, you know, the linemen and football and, those kind of guys end up getting metabolic syndrome. They get over fat. They end up with high blood pressure, high blood sugar, fatty liver disease, um, you know, high cholesterol, and they just stop improving performance because their body's just partitioning nutrients towards fat and not to, you know, they end up with getting sleep apnea and a whole host of other problems. And so the diet is intended to help uh, correct and prevent those problems as well. So it's uh, multifaceted that way. It's uh, uh, really intended for health first, and performance is really just a byproduct of that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's amazing how a diet can really like kind of prevent things like this from happening. Like we're talking both set, both ends of the spectrum. Like we're talking a woman who might be, uh, you know, anemic, who is very iron deficient. And we're talking about a guy who could be, you know, who's powerlifting and doing a bunch of heavy lifting, um, who could have hypertension at the end um, because he's overeating. So we're going from like under eating and being very, very um, malnourished to being overweight and, you know, having a very, very high blood pressure. So we're talking about both ends of the spectrum because people are so uninformed about their diets and so informed about micronutrients and the importance of it um that like these these things happen and especially people in the bodybuilding industry we didn't I, we didn't go too specific on like what type of diet um people run in the bodybuilding industry or like the typical bodybuilding diet but we're talking like uh chicken rice like and not not too much variety you know uh, not too much variety of proteins and stuff like that yeah brief summary of that is is they typically eat egg whites tilapia and broccoli and then they might uh, you know get a, a treat for some peanut butter every now and then. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, egg whites are high in avidin protein, which binds to biotin. Uh, the yolk is where all the micronutrients are, the most of them, the biotin, the uh, choline, um, the K2. Uh, and when you eat a lot of uh, uh, egg whites that bind to biotin, that's for your skin, hair, and nails. That's where the girl's skin and hair starts drying out. They don't have adequate iodine source in the diet typically, and so then they get hypothyroidism, and then that dry hair starts falling out. Uh, they're eating a lot of chicken, and we know that beef is uh, uh, at least six times higher in iron and nine times higher in zinc and 12 times higher in B12, and uh, in addition to you know choline and carnitine and uh, just a host of so many other uh, micronutrients that are so valuable, um, you know, glutamine and and uh, selenium and potassium and creatine and all those things uh, are far superior in red meat. Uh, they also have a better fatty acid profile because ruminant animals such as, uh, you know, bison and, and, um, and beef, uh, lamb and deer, uh, they, uh, they have a, a four-chambered stomach and they, uh, they actually ferment 
cellulose fiber into uh, monounsaturated and saturated fats, which uh, the chickens and the turkeys and the pigs don't do that. They're monogastric animals and they eat a bunch of corn and soy and they can't convert those polyunsaturates. And so uh, you just end up with a much better omega-6 to omega-3 ratio when you're eating ruminant animals. And that's not to say we eat them, you know, exclusively. We, of course, have uh, whole eggs in there. We have dairy, which has uh, been shown in many studies to improve body composition and provide the calcium necessary for people to, uh, not only for bone health, but also for nerve signaling for muscle contraction. I don't think people appreciate that uh, those who study, uh, you know, muscle physiology know that, uh, that calcium is responsible for the excitation relaxation cycle of muscle contraction. So all those things have a, you know, a huge benefit. And so we're just using fundamental foods. The gurus say don't eat red meat. They say, uh, and I just explained why that's a bad idea. They say don't, uh, uh, don't eat fruit and fruit it's very important for the diet too. It increases uh, body temperature. It's been shown in many studies to have an anti-obesity effect. Uh, you, can, you can Google the studies. There's many of them. Uh, high in fiber, high in phytonutrients, uh, high in water. Um, increases body temperature, very satiating, which is huge when you're dieting. A big component of my diet is in terms of compliance is making sure people have adequate uh, energy and that they're not uh, over hungry, that they're satiated. Um, so you know, and they also exclude salt of all things. I'm sure we can dive into that later as well, but that's kind of how my diet differs from, from the traditional guru diet or from the traditional, uh, uh, you know, dirty bulk type of diet. I, I maintain some sensibility on both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were talking about before. Like we cover, we're trying to cover both ends of the spectrum when, whether you're malnourished or uh, overeating. So let's dive in specifically to, um, you mentioned that red meats are a huge component of your diet and there are very, very, man, uh, very, a lot of added benefits to adding it into your diet as opposed to, you know, just like dry chicken, tilapia, stuff that doesn't, uh, isn't as nutrient dense. So why don't we go over why specifically red meat is such a good source of nutrients and why people should be incorporating it into their diet. Yeah. I mean, I, I just ran through some of those pretty fast. Uh, uh, again, six times higher in iron and mm-hmm. nine times higher in zinc and about 12 times higher in B12 and, and the ruminant animals uh, uh, just give you a better fatty acid profile. Um, I also find it to be more satiating. Of course, the iron, the heme iron is uh, much more uh, absorbable than vegetable iron and uh, definitely for women in particular benefits them, particularly dieting women and women because of their menstrual cycle tend to suffer from anemia to a much greater degree than men and the calorie restriction. And so, uh, you know, they, they end up getting iron supplements very often. And uh, we know that you can create toxicities with iron supplements. They don't have the cofactors necessary to, to balance that out. You can eat a lot of liver and not get an iron toxicity uh, or a vitamin A toxicity. But when you start supplementing that stuff, uh, you have much higher likelihood of ending up with toxicities because they don't have those cofactors. So uh, it's very important. It's very satiating. I, I uh, find the clients' testimonials suggest that, uh, that when they eat red meat, particularly steak uh, over chicken, that uh, they're, they're just full longer, uh, which is a benefit of protein in general. Um, and I'm not saying that chicken's bad for you, although I haven't eaten chicken in about 10 years. It's just, to me, it's like kind of like the leg extension of, of leg exercises, you know? <laughs> I know what you're saying, yeah. It's the squat, you know? And if I go to the gym, I know which exercise I'm picking. And that doesn't mean I don't throw in leg extension every now and then, but it's not, it's not the core of my program. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a, the foundation is red meat. For dieters, I use steak because it's, uh, you know, mechanically speaking, it's just to chew it and to digest it. It keeps you full long longer and um, uh, you know it, it, uh, it just takes longer to eat which of course you know there's kind of that time and, and stretch reflex as far as uh, stimulating satiety in the brain and so those are all just little strategies that we use that might help people uh, curb their their hunger and then for people who are trying to gain weight I actually use a ground beef or a ground bison it's easier to eat more of it to blend it with you know bone broth and white rice and some scrambled eggs and they can consume a larger amount, they digest it faster, they can eat again sooner uh, and have less digestive distress. So it is, it, it is a foundation of my diet that I've just found to be so beneficial. And you know, I, I talked about the science, but anecdotally and from somebody who's trained hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients, and I've received over 50,000 DMs in the last two years from people all over the world asking me questions about the diet. I get an enormous amount of feedback and it's very consistent that when people start eating uh, red meat when they hadn't been, 
they're, uh, they just perform better. They feel better. They feel stronger. Uh, their body composition improves. Uh, I, I just get so much great feedback from it that they're shocked that they excluded it for so long based on those, uh, you know, prevailing wisdoms or myths in the industry. Absolutely. And uh, if we take a look at a diet that, uh, that might like not even include meats um, into their food groups, such as the vegan diet, um, there are studies that show that you will, you are going to be vitamin B12 deficient when you hop on a vegan diet. And, but when you have, you know, red meat in your diet, you don't have to worry about that. And then when you go to, if you're in a vegan diet, you have to supplement it. And like you said, there's a bigger chance of toxicity in your diet. If you do have that B12 as a supplement or really any other supplement in for that case, like iron and, uh, uh, the other micronutrients that you were going over beforehand. Yeah. Vegan diets are tough. And I do understand that people have some ethical concerns with respect to uh, meat consumption. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter in the diet on veganism and on vegetarian. I have recommendations for them, supplemental and, and uh, in addition to ways to help with digestion, because those are often uh, difficult. I've trained vegetarian and vegan competitors, including for competition, for uh, figure physique and bikini. And so, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to it. I, I think that the best diet is the one you'll follow. And if that includes your ethical uh, position, then I'm going to try and accommodate somebody and optimize their, their choices as best I can. The, the, the vegetarian diet's pretty easy, especially if they're lacto-ovo and they can handle some dairy and some eggs, uh, and especially if, they're, um, uh, if they'll allow some fish in their diet, which uh, some do, the pescatarians. So uh, those are easy. Those are perfectly reasonable protein sources. They're, you know, affordable and, and you know, very high quality. So they don't have to have red meat in order to, to be successful as a vegetarian. Um, the vegan diets are more difficult, and primarily because they do need to eat more protein because it's a less, um, uh, less quality of protein, less absorbable, probably 30% more protein. And a lot of the protein is associated with more calories. If you look at a protein per calorie uh, measurement, and so that can be difficult for dieters in particular. Uh, and, and there are some micronutrients that are really difficult to get. And so uh, I make a bunch of suggestions in the book about vegetarian supplementation, things like digestion in terms of whether or not they need uh, um, uh, HCL pepsin uh, or supplements like uh, say a soy protein or a Stan, can you hear me? Protein just to, to be able to get adequate leucine to Yep, I can hear you. Just waiting to get us. Now yeah, we're back up and running. Yep, all right. So good. I had mentioned that uh, having adequate leucine was important. Yep, I mentioned having adequate leucine was important for uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis. And uh, so sometimes you do need a soy uh, or a, a, a pea protein supplement, which can provide that for you. And also fewer additional carbohydrate calories, which is important for dieters. And not because carbohydrates are bad, but because calories uh, are pretty important when you're trying to lose weight and need to maintain a deficit. And protein is probably the most important macronutrient to maximize in terms of satiation and lean body mass retention. Uh, and so you gotta be careful what, uh, you know, what automatically comes with it when you're trying to get an adequate amount of, of some of the most important macronutrients. So. Mm -hmm. And now that we're on the topic of protein, so what would you recommend to someone trying to lose weight? Because at least how I, how I approach it sometimes with my clients is I decrease the amount of protein if they are in a mass gaining phase and I increase the amount of protein as they're cutting. So I just want to know, what are your thoughts on that? And also, how much do you think, how much protein should someone be eating in general? Because there's a lot of different numbers thrown out there. Um, you know, RDA has something completely different as opposed to uh, what bodybuilders and powerlifters recommend. So what do you, what's your sweet spot, you think, for protein amount? Yeah, I think the RDA is, has been shown by many, many researchers. Uh, uh, Brad Schoenfeld in particular is leading uh, that drive uh, to be insufficient. I think that you need about, uh, let's, just, let's just say about 0.8 grams per pound uh, is, a, is a good baseline to retain lean body mass in a calorie deficit. And so I kind of start with a gram a pound and see if they can, see if they can get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe even 1.2 grams per pound of body weight if they're already reasonably lean and they exercise regularly. Uh, and because there's, there's really no downside to getting a little more. Uh, and the upside is, is again, it's satiating and it has a high thermic effect of food. So you can eat more food and get fewer net calories out of it. And just kind of in terms of, of just the enjoyment of actually being able to eat more than three forkfuls, 
uh, mm -hmm. you know, becomes something that you can comply with for a longer period of time. So yeah, protein's fantastic. Uh, I, all my weight gainers, I do reduce protein a bit and the calorie surplus, it's highly unlikely you're going to be catabolic and the, the extra carbs that I throw in their diets are protein sparing. So, uh, but I'm concerned for weight gainers that, that they'll not have the appetite necessary to consume enough calories. So I have to mitigate that by bringing the protein down because it is pretty satiating. So I'm right on target with you there. I think that's a, a good range uh, to be in. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And when you see someone, when you see most athletes, like let's say you take on a professional athlete, he can be a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, whatever it is. Um, and I know we've talked about a bunch of different micronutrients here, but what are the main ones that you see that you assess their diet immediately? And you're like, you're not getting enough of this, like certain micronutrient or certain uh, macronutrient. Like what, what's your, what's your take in, uh, what are most of your athletes deficient in when they first come into you, like into your programs? Yeah, I did a video on that, uh, on supplementation, and uh, you know, talked about what you're deficient in. Really, the only way to tell is to get a blood test. Mm -hmm. uh, and even then, you know, the, the vitamins and minerals in your blood uh, are generally held in a pretty tight range uh, and robbed from the rest of your body, which you can't test for. And so what we see mostly is vitamin D deficiency, first and foremost. We often see that in, in hard training athletes, vitamin D3. And we do a vitamin D 25 hydroxy blood test to give us a range. And I saw that uh, in myself and many, many of my athletes uh, below 30, some as low as 20 or in the teens. Um, that could give somebody an immediate improvement in general sense of well-being and performance and recovery and insulin sensitivity and sleep improvement uh, when you go from a deficit and uh, supplement into the normal range. Now, if you're in the normal range, megadosing vitamin D3 has not been shown to give you any, any additional benefit, and I don't recommend it. Uh, vitamin D3 can increase calcium absorption by up to 20-fold, and so if you start consuming too much vitamin D3 along with a calcium supplement, you might end up with hypercalcemia. Uh, so uh, we're cautious about making sure that we're looking for optimal ranges and not megadosing. We saw, you know, Linus Pauling era tried to megadose antioxidants, vitamin A's and vitamin E's, et cetera, and, and they end up with toxicities and adverse effects. So uh, the other one is magnesium. Really hard to get adequate magnesium. I see deficiencies in that. Uh, and magnesium is important for vitamin D, D3 absorption. So those kind of work hand in hand. Uh, we often see this with a lot of vitamin deficiencies is they uh, deficient in one, you're usually deficient in two because they work together closely. Uh, like I mentioned with respect to calcium and vitamin D3. Uh, uh, so we supplement both of those. Um, generally about 4,000 IUs a day, vitamin D3. Uh, I'd like to get a blood test to see if that's an adequate amount. And then about 400 IUs, uh, I'm sorry, 4,000 IUs of vitamin D3 and then 400 milligrams of magnesium. I'm picky about uh, making sure that those are taken with meals and so that they're absorbed better, especially vitamin D3 because it's fat soluble. We take the vitamin D3 daily because the studies that show lar larger doses weekly uh, don't show as uh, good of a benefit. Uh, and of course, we've also seen recently in terms of COVID, the uh, benefits to upper respiratory tract infection. So it seems like D3 is the, the darling of the media right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, magnesium helps with sleep. So we take that with dinner. And uh, that's supposed to help with sleep, also helps with um, um, uh, vasodilation and blood pressure. So those are all benefits. And that might take us right into a conversation about salt if we're headed there. Because We are going to get right on the <laughs> okay, I'll leave it to you. Um, but I was just wondering, so we're talking vitamin D deficiency and magnesium deficiency are a big thing that you see, especially in your athletes. So what are foods that you implement and almost not maybe, maybe not immediately, but you know, fairly quickly, they get rid of these deficiencies, because I know you said you supplement it um, as well. But what are some foods that can lead them in the right direction to getting these uh, specific nutri nutrients in their diets? You know, it's hard to get from food. That's why we supplement them. And uh, the foods that are highest in magnesium are also highest in the, in the anti-nutrients that bind to magnesium. Uh, things like uh, spinach and, and almonds and things like that. Uh, they have uh, phytonutrients that, that, uh, that bind to magnesium. So we just find it difficult. And vitamin D3 is really kind of a hormone, not a vitamin. So it's not very uh, prevalent in, in a lot of foods. Uh, I think... Uh, maybe some um, uh, liver, uh, like uh, fish, uh, cod liver is probably one of the, the, the best ways to get it, but that would probably be a supplement as well. 
um, you know, fatty fish like salmon and of course some dairy, but even at that, it's usually uh, supplemented in the dairy, it's uh, fortified. So uh, really hard to get from food. I almost always end up recommending a supplement for vitamin D3, if, uh, particularly if the blood test warrants it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. All right, now we'll get to your, your favorite topic that you were eager to get to. Um, we'll get to sodium intake. So just a few words on sodium beforehand. So uh, as a nutrition student, I see that it is very, very like iffy on sodium intake because they really do associate higher sodium intakes with stuff like hypertension, uh, hypothyroidism, all this stuff. So like um, I, I'm very curious to hear what your intake is because I know you preach higher sodium intake for athletes specifically. So I kind of want to know where this perspective is coming from and uh, just what research has been done to show that higher sodium intake um, does lead to increased performance and healthier lifestyle. Yeah, well, it's two different things, but we'll, we'll talk about both of them. The International <laughs> Society of Sports Nutrition and the National Strength and Conditioning Association both recommend uh, putting sodium with your fluid intake for performance. Uh, my recommendations are, are consistent with theirs, 500 milligrams of sodium before and after training. That's a quarter teaspoon of salt. Uh, and we see that it improves performance, it improves stamina and endurance, or improves recovery, increases blood volume. Uh, it's just so that bout of exercise, uh, you end up not getting tired as fast. It uh, helps with um, uh, regulating your body temperature, uh, your sweat response, all of that. And it's individualistic. I mean, I work with Lane Johnson and he's uh, uh, the uh, Heat Institute, which is run by Dr. Sandra Godick, who's the, uh, a PhD in thermal regulation and hydration. Uh, they do all the sweat testing on the Philadelphia Eagles and Lane's sweat test showed he sweated out five grams of sodium an hour. It's an extraordinary amount. That's 12 grams of salt every hour that he's training. And so obviously he needs more than the average person. Uh, also, with respect to average people, a lot of people go on diets and they end up eliminating uh, fast food and packaged food, which is a good thing. Uh, but that's where all their salt was. And so now they end up eating foods that, uh, that without adding salt to their foods, they end up uh, not getting adequate sodium in many cases, and then they start to get tired and hungry. It does have a significant effect on cravings uh, and on energy. And so, uh, you know, I recommend salting foods to taste, uh, as does Dr. Sandra Godek. Uh, and Dr. Dean Nicolantonio, author of The Salt Fix, uh, just because your, your tongue will tell you uh, whether or not you need more or less. It's a negative feedback loop. It's not like sugar. You just keep pouring more and more on. So uh, that's kind of our recommendation. Salt meals to taste and then get 500 milligrams of sodium before and after training. Uh, and we find that, that people feel a lot better. Plus salt is sodium chloride, hydrochloric acid. It benefits digestion as well. I find a lot of people who've had digestion problems start adding a little bit of salt and all of a sudden they they don't have as much gas and bloating uh, because their hydrochloric acid improves, which helps with digestion and breakdown of you know, proteins and absorption of minerals and nutrients. So we see a big benefit there. Uh, on to the research, we'll talk about uh, why the concern. There is a small percentage of the population that are hypertensive. They have a predisposition for high blood pressure or what we might call salt sensitive. When they start consuming salt, uh, they get an increase in blood pressure. You usually don't see that increase in blood pressure until they exceed about six or seven grams of sodium a day. Uh, the safe range by most research, uh, uh, well, the, the largest study is the PEER study uh, uh, run by Dr. Salem Youssef, the uh, head of the World Heart Federation. He's a cardiologist out of Canada. And the PEER study is the largest and most recent study that did the most comprehensive measurements of uh, sodium intake and excretion. They actually did urinary excretion analysis. So it was more than just epidemiology. Uh, over 100, I think 130,000 people in 22 countries. Uh, and they kind of found a range in there between about three and six grams of consumption daily. That was what they referred to as the safe range in, uh, in terms of um, health outcomes and measurement of all cause mortality. Salt sensitive people, and they divided this up into two groups, those who, who did have an increase in blood pressure uh, and those who did not. And they, they identified the, the, the hypertensive people as salt sensitive. And, that was a small percentage of the population. I can't remember, it was eight to 12%. When they got an excess of six grams of sodium a day, they had an increase in blood pressure. What they also found is when they, uh, when they included adequate potassium in their diet, the increase went away. We also saw in that same study that uh, sodium intake below three grams a day increased all-cause mortality at a much greater rate than the excessive sodium intake on hypertensives. So below three grams of sodium a day. This was confirmed by 
by a Cochrane uh, meta-analysis that was uh, uh, a Cochrane review that went over, I think they, they did 23 studies and, and, and took a good deep dive into uh, the same thing. And even with hypertensive, you get below three grams of sodium a day. There is the uh, paradox, I guess you would call it from my explanation, and that's um, the DASH diet. Uh, when people go on the DASH diet, they've seen a reduction in cardiovascular disease uh, from a reduction in sodium intake. But what they don't tell you is that it's because they increased fruits and vegetables, which increased potassium, magnesium, and calcium intake. So uh, the, the benefit was from that, the hypertension benefit. So that's kind of the, the most important thing, takeaway from this in terms of the sodium intake uh, is one, if you're susceptible to to sodium uh, to being hypertensive, then you're going to want to make sure that, you know, and everybody should get adequate potassium because that is what balances water in the body, the intracellular extracellular relationship between sodium and potassium. Uh, I've often found that when I just increase people's potassium, their edema starts to go away, their, their ankle uh, water retention that they might get around their ankles, etc. cetera, the, um, kind of some of the bloating in the face. I see that even in my big athletes when I start getting enough potassium in them. Uh, they start, the bloating starts going away, the water retention in their head starts to improve. So uh, there's some more great stuff I put in my book. All of this information I'm talking about, I link in my book, uh, the studies, the videos, the articles. Dr. Aaron Carroll has, uh, is the Dean of Research at Indiana, uh, and he has a YouTube site called Healthcare Triage, and um, they did a deep dive into this and talked to Dr. Clyde Yancey, who's the uh, professor of cardiology at the Northwestern School of Medicine, and uh, you know, he said, so there's simply no data to show that salt restriction reduces heart disease. And he's looked over the, the data, you know, extensively and uh, where there has been any data to, that suggests an improvement, it's confounded by the fact that they increased uh, potassium and calcium and uh, probably also had significant weight loss associated uh, with that. So uh, I'm a big proponent of, of getting adequate sodium in the diet. I, I've seen, I mentioned that I've had you know, over 50,000 DMs over the last two years, it's the number one piece of feedback I get all over the world from people who start implementing uh, adequate sodium and potassium intake, uh, just how life-changing it is for them. You get, and this is, this is like, you get a client that pops up off the leg press at the gym and gets lightheaded. It's a sodium deficiency. You've got a mom or a grandmother at home. I've got a 90-year-old dad here in the house. Uh, and, you know, if he stands up and he's dizzy, then I'm looking at his diet to see if he's getting adequate sodium because that's the cause. And I don't want him, you know, getting lightheaded and dizzy and falling over because the number one cause of death and the elderly is fall, you know, is complications or, or lack of recovery from an injury from falling. And so those things are a big concern to me. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, a big proponent of getting adequate sodium, and, uh, but also, you know, recognizing that uh, there's things like, you know, size, uh, heat, humidity, workload, you know, all of those things, you know, have an impact on how much you, you could consume uh, and just, you know, do it sensibly and, and, you know, just make sure that you understand, um, you know, monitor your blood pressure. Uh, and uh, just, I think it, it's, it's all upside or mostly upside for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy how you say that sub three grams of sodium, which is 3000 milligrams of sodium it does lead to higher mortality rates, but that's insane because the RDA is 2,300 milligrams. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's blows my right. mind. Yeah, Dr. Yusuf specifically called out the American Heart Association and the World Health Organization for not having adequate data to make those recommendations. They just don't. Uh, so, uh, and they ref what they do is they refer to the DASH diet is what they do. And the DASH diet does show a reduction in cardiovascular disease, but it's not as a result of sodium reduction. When you have uh, similar studies that maintain sodium intake above three grams, but introduce the same amount of potassium and magnesium, then they have the same health outcomes. And so it's unnecessary to, re to reduce the sodium and it has the, the, the unwanted side effects of causing people uh, to feel like shit all the time. Ever ask anybody who, who's actually adhering to the DASH diet and they're tired and they're hungry and they feel like shit all the time. Uh, I mentioned about the dizziness and, and those kinds of things. So uh, I think that's tragic is to, to subject somebody to that kind of, of discomfort in life uh, unnecessarily. 
Mm -hmm. And it's funny that I'm actually very glad that you mentioned the dash diet because I'm pretty, I'm 95% sure the reason why most of the people think that, or most of the people in the American Heart Association even think that is because that's what they're taught. Like when I'm, I'm a nutrition student right now in university and they teach me that, Hey, dash diet solves so-and-so, or it solves this, it solves everything like dash diet, dash diet, dash diet. Like, all right, but like, why don't we, you know, look at some real studies and look at other aspects that could also bring longevity to people. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that they don't look at that. There's they're multifactorial, and if uh, you know, there's confounding variables like I just mentioned with respect to uh, the magnesium and the potassium. So we see the same thing in most epidemiology studies. We see, uh, you know, the healthy user bias, where people who tend to eat more red meat also tend to uh, weigh more, drink more, smoke more, and exercise less. And the people who eat less red meat uh, and eat more vegetables also tend to weigh less, smoke less, drink less, and exercise more. So uh, you know, it's hard to tease out those variables uh, and, uh, you know, look at, at foods individually and, and uh, you know, and even more so the micronutrient content when you get and dig into those diets and, and put a chronometer to them, you start to see uh, the, the things that are really different and might be having the actual effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that, so you said pre-workout and post-workout, we're talking 500 milligrams of sodium. Um, and what else would you put along with your pre-workout stacks and post-workout stacks? I'm not talking just like supplements, but I'm talking, you know, like what is a healthy amount to consume before you even go into the gym? Are you planning on going to the gym soon? And then what should you be taking in afterwards? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about this. And again, I'll refer back to the ISSN. They, they, you know, Dr. Jose Antonio, the president over there, does a great job. They have position papers at the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, which you can look at online. That talks about you know their protein feeding and supplements and uh, meal timing, etc. So, one of the things they suggest is just to get a good meal a couple hours before training, and that's going to be different for everyone. And it's going to be it's going to be dependent upon the intensity of the training. You know, you're going to play a football game. You might want to eat three hours before. You know, it's just kind of it depends on your personal tolerance for how much you eat food you eat and how close to training as to whether or not it has an adverse impact on your ability to perform. So. Uh, and that meal should be, you know, probably uh, we put the bulk of our carbohydrates around training. So it would probably be a little higher in carbs, maybe just some rice. I, I like, you know, obviously the, the monster mash, a little bison, a little rice and uh, scrambled egg and some bone broth is always a really easy to digest meal. I eat that about two hours before training. And I put some salt on that. Now they have studied whether or not taking carbs right before a workout helps improve performance and it doesn't seem to have much benefit. Uh, there is some indication for uh, people who, who do like a lengthy activity, you know, an hour and a half or longer, 90, 90 minutes to two hours plus for like ultra marathoners or long distance biking, et cetera, that consuming a blend of carbohydrates and sodium and water about every 20 minutes throughout your training session can uh, enhance your performance uh, and reduce, um, uh, you know, dehydration throughout the training bath. So that could be a benefit, but downing a whole ton of carbs right before training. I mean, if you, if you like to sip on something because it tastes good and it makes you feel good, that's fine. Um, no, real, no, no real signs that there's a scientific benefit. Uh, the sodium does seem to help uh, with the performance. Just a couple other things, uh, creatine in general, not necessarily pre-workout, but that, that has the most science to suggest it can be a benefit. People who eat more red meat have less benefit than people who eat less red meat because there's creatine in red meat. Um, uh, and also there's a couple others, beta alanine, citrulline malate. There's some evidence that they can help with uh, endurance and uh, stamina. Uh, I don't think it moves the needle anywhere near what salt would, uh, but you know, there's some decent evidence to suggest that that could be of benefit. It's not much else, to be honest with you, that really is, is got the bang for the buck. Caffeine is a performance enhancer in adequate doses, somewhere between two and six grams per kilogram. So you'd need like 200 to 600 uh, or two and six milligrams per kilogram. So you need about 200 to 600 milligrams of caffeine uh, before a workout. You know, a 200 pound person might need to, uh, you know, about five, 600 milligrams of caffeine. And that can help with performance. I, I hate when people use it to compensate for poor sleep, poor hydration, and poor nutrition, however. You know, you go to the gym and you're tired. That's a problem. You should figure out how to get to the gym not tired and let it be a performance enhancer, not, a, you know, a deficit improver, <laughs> you know, yeah. I just don't think that's a good way to, to use it. And then uh, post-training, if you're training twice a day, uh, great idea to get, uh, to load back up on your electrolytes and your carbohydrates. And the best way to do that uh, is, uh, it comes out of Dr. Sandra Godick's group again at the Heat Institute, is to use any two sugars 
with sodium. Uh, they have a product called Levelin, and that's just dextrose and maltodextrin with a, uh, a high sodium content. I, I use orange juice and the dextrose now has a big, huge tub of dextrose on at Amazon that you can just put a big scoop of that into OJ, and, uh, pop a couple of uh, salt tablets. I use the uh, sodium chloride tablets on Amazon. Uh, they're dirt cheap and I don't like the taste of the salt on my tongue. So I just pop a couple of pills and I, I down that. But that'll absolutely help you rehydrate faster. It'll increase the rate of absorption of glucose and sodium by up to threefold. And so that your second workout of the day, whether it be four or six hours later, uh, you'll certainly get another meal in between uh, then and then. But um, that has a dramatic improvement on just the way you feel going into that second training session. Okay. I gotcha. And do you see most of your athletes going uh, at, for two a days or is it mostly just one or what do you, or you see a wide variety of uh, training sessions throughout the day? Wide variety. It kind of depends on the athlete, the time of year, obviously your strongmen. Uh, sometimes I encourage them to do two a days. I, I like to separate some of their uh, strength training from some of their skill work. Um, and uh, obviously the UFC guys, the CrossFit people, uh, they're all going to train twice a day. Uh, swimmers, of course, gym, gymnasts, uh, you're going to see a lot of those people training twice a day. And so uh, they'll definitely benefit from having that extra uh, post-workout carbohydrate sodium drink. I gotcha. I gotcha. And a huge thing that you add, uh, put in your diet um, that helps a lot of people is digestion improvement. Cause I know you put a lot of emphasis on that and that is definitely something that a lot of diets do not do. So can you tell me what are some good tips um, on how to improve your digestion overall and what makes the vertical diet such a good, um, a good component of digestion as well? Yep. That's very important. We see this again on both extremes in divers uh, in the fitness industry uh, and in weight gainers. So in the fitness industry, you see a lot of incidents of, uh, of IBS, IBD, Crohn's, and those kinds of things. We see low hydrochloric acid, uh, which causes them a lot of gas and bloating and indigestion, and uh, even GERD, acid reflux. So we see a lot of that. And uh, we see it on the other end of the spectrum too. Those, those guys that have to eat a lot of calories end up with diarrhea and constipation and uh, you know, a lot of gas and bloating and digestion issues. They're just uncomfortable all the time. You watch any of those videos of those guys trying to eat, you know, eight or 10,000 calories a day. And it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's painful. It's a full-time job. So one of the things that, that you know, anybody who suffers from uh, some type of uh, digestive distress, whether it be an autoimmune disorder or um, something like that, anybody who suffers from those kinds of things uh, would end up going to a registered dietitian or a nutritionist and they would implement an elimination diet. That's very common. And the number one study, this would seems to be the most widely accepted in the industry elimination diet with the highest success ratio is the low FODMAP diet, fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides and polyols. And that uh, diet has been shown in most research to provide 60 to 80% of the people who utilize it some relief of their symptoms. That doesn't mean it's a cure, but it can definitely reduce, you know, gas and bloating, IBS, IBD, and those kinds of things. And they just eliminate foods that are high uh, gas foods, uh, grains and oats and vegetable oils and sugar alcohols and legumes and, you know, brown rice, garlic, uh, high raffinose vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and, and those. Not that they're bad foods, but if they're hard to digest, it, it doesn't do you much good to, to keep eating them. Uh, and, you know, it's individualistic. Um, everybody responds differently. Uh, it's dose dependent, how much of those foods you consume in any one sitting uh, can matter. It's uh, how it's prepared matters. If you ferment your bread, like in sourdough bread, it's easier to digest. You can ferment your oatmeal. You soak it overnight in uh, apple cider vinegar or yogurt and it, it ferments and makes it easier to digest the next morning when you cook it. Uh, it's also cumulative. Sometimes you can handle a, a cup of oatmeal one morning and maybe even the next morning, but by the third morning, all of a sudden you're bloated and you can't figure out why. You don't think it's the oatmeal because you've been eating it two days in a row, but it can have a cumulative effect. It can build up. Uh, and the same thing's true with sugar alcohols. You might be able to handle a pint or a, you know, a serving here or there of Halo Top ice cream, but when you jam down the whole pint, you're sprinting to the bathroom with diarrhea and you can't figure out why. And it's, it's sugar alcohols, you know, the polyols and sorbitol and mannitol and those kinds of things. So yeah, I, I lead with a low FODMAP diet. I don't want to create more problems than I solve. And so I start there. And if people don't have any digestion issues, then uh, they can introduce other food items 
uh, as they desire and as they tolerate. I've often said that I don't eat foods I like, I eat foods that like me, and I make that decision about an hour after I eat. Mm -hmm. uh, I had this conversation with a friend recently, and he says, you know, when he looks at food, he doesn't look at it in terms of, of how it will taste now, he looks at it in terms of how will he feel in an hour. And that, when people ask me, you know, don't you have cheat meals or don't you get cravings? And I got to be honest with you, I felt so good for so long and I know my triggers that I don't see a tasty food as being tasty. I see it as a, as a problem, yeah. and it's a, a one that I want to avoid. So uh, I wouldn't eat at a fast food place, you know, if, if, if I had the option not to because it would, I just feel like shit afterwards because uh, my trigger is vegetable oils. It gives me... Uh, really bad digestive distress. I, I, I rarely make it more than 30 minutes or an hour without having to run to the bathroom after I eat uh, soybean and safflower and uh, corn oil and uh, those kinds of things, you know, canola. And so I avoid them. They're usually in, in everything that's cooked at a restaurant. So I always found when I was bodybuilding, I had very little digestive distress because I was cooking all my food at home. And when I was powerlifting and eating a lot of stuff at restaurants and burrito places and pizza places, that I had a lot of problems. And uh, it's because my trigger was uh, was vegetable oils. And then I started seeing it more and more and more in my clients. The vast majority of them present with similar types of problems. And when they introduce uh, the low FODMAP diet, I mean, they call it the vertical diet, but uh, I'm very quick to, to say in there that I'm, I'm using that menu uh, from Monash uh, to, to pick and choose the kinds of foods that are less likely to cause them digestive distress. Uh, and, and they'll you know, come back to me invariably saying that they they just feel better. Their stomach feels flatter. They have more energy, less brain fog. Uh, they don't get to the gym and feel like they have to run to the bathroom. Uh, those, those kinds of things are, are really important. And even like the guys who have to eat a ton of food say they're able to eat more and more often because they don't have as much of the gas and bloating and digestion problems. Mm -hmm. And if you can't digest properly, you can't perform properly in the gym or you can't perform properly in your sport. Like I've been there where I was an athlete in high uh, wrestling in high school and I was like, Oh crap. Like why the hell did I eat that before my, yeah. before my first match? Like, why did I do that? Um, but another big thing that you, that actually a friend of mine uh, told me that you mentioned um, was walking after eating a meal. Can you tell, can you tell me about the benefits about walking a little bit after you consume a meal? Yeah, I can't say enough about this. And I know I've said a lot about this, but uh, for those that have heard it uh, and tried it, they know it works. Some huge benefits. One of the big ones is insulin sensitivity, that uh, you can dramatically decrease the spike in blood sugars and the duration of their elevation, thereby uh, reducing the area under the curve for insulin secretion, which has a whole host of benefits health-wise. We know that it's a precursor for uh, heart disease and, and a whole host of other uh, health, poor health outcomes. So uh, twice as effective as metformin for uh, reversing or preventing type 2 diabetes, just taking a 10-minute walk after meals, metformin being the number one prescribed medication in the world for type 2 diabetes. We know that the, that movement, in particular that movement after meals, uh, is twice as effective for controlling blood sugars. Decreases gas, as just mentioned, uh, a lot of people end up with uh, uh, you know, things like GERD, uh, gastric reflux, so it improves digestion when you take a walk after a meal. And, it increases the enzymatic action and the muscular contraction necessary to help digest your food. Uh, so that's very beneficial. Uh, decreases delayed onset muscle soreness and of course aids in recovery. There's been plenty of research to show that um, you get an equivalent outcome from general movement as you do from specific therapy uh, with respect to pain. Like if you have back pain and you go to a chiropractor and they work on you, uh, you can get an equivalent result, and they've studied this extensively, uh, from just taking three 10-minute walks a day. Uh, part of that is because 99 per, well, 90%, I think, as the research suggests, of pain resolves itself what they call spontaneously within four to six weeks. So whatever me mechanism uh, or intervention that you're using to help uh, relieve your pain, you'll attribute the pain relief to that mechanism. So whether you're using cryotherapy or, um, uh, you know, a chiropractor or even a one of those uh, one of those little bands you wear on your wrist, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Copper bands or some, you know, magnetic shoe insert or uh, you know, electric stem or you name the therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, they all have about a 90 percent uh, uh, recovery rate because that's exactly the same recovery rate as spontaneously recovering when you do absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to have that discussion. It's not to say there can't be some great benefit from going to a therapist, uh, you know, a chiropractor, a physical 
therapist, uh, really I think their job is to facilitate movement that then allows you to move. Because if you have pain, you're less likely to move and you need to move to heal. Uh, and so I use therapists for, uh, you know, as a way to, uh, to help me move with less pain. And then I want those individuals to move and frequency is more important. Uh, so the three 10 minute walks a day uh, is better than one bout of act, an equivalent bout of activity at the end of the day. We've seen that in all cause mortality research and uh, general health improvement with sedentary office workers who move around frequently throughout the day, they fare better in terms of general health and, and decreased all-cause mortality than those who just uh, do an equivalent uh, amount of exercise at the end of the day. So the, there seems to be an important, um, uh, the, the dose, the frequency seems to matter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just, I think, two more questions probably, and then we'll, uh, we'll end it off there. Um, but what is one of the biggest things, of, one of the, what is one of the biggest aspects of recovery that tends to be ignored that more people should be paying attention to to increase their performance in the gym? Yeah, I did a video called uh, uh, The Best Way to Recover from Training, I think, mm -hmm. um, on, uh, on YouTube, one of my rants. And a couple of huge things. I'm going to start with the monster, with sleep. And uh, people just don't give themselves an adequate time to sleep. Uh, maybe they don't create the right environment. I have a whole section on sleep where I talk about good sleep hygiene, dark room, quiet room, cool room, uh, turning off the, the blue lights, the TVs and the screens uh, an hour or two before bed. Um, you know, de-stressing, maybe a, 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 they call it a, a stress journal or a worry journal, you know, just kind of writing some things out and on a piece of paper and sitting next to you at, at nighttime. Uh, waking up in the morning at the same time and getting exposed to sunlight so you can start that circadian clock and your melatonin can be released uh, sufficiently at night to make you tired and make you go to bed. So those are all huge components. And then the big one is, uh, is going to be, uh, you know, for a lot of the big guys in particular, is going to be sleep apnea. Uh, and wearing a CPAP for that, because that's a, that's a monster. Um, people who are, who are snoring and waking up tired are going to suffer from greater degrees of fatigue and increased delayed onset muscle soreness. They get brain fog. It dramatically increases blood pressure. I don't think people appreciate that it can go up by 20 points just from having apnea and holding your breath at night. Um, you get sodium loss. And you got to get up and pee frequently throughout the night because their body's not releasing antidiuretic hormone adequately because they never make it into deep sleep. Uh, we, we see in their blood tests, they have higher RBCs and hemoglobin and hematocrit. Uh, you know, your, your blood gets thicker as a result, which increases your heart attack risk. And these people suffer from depression. Uh, you know, obviously sore throats because they're snoring all night uh, is a big problem. Headaches and, uh, you know, much more, uh, we see much more uh, uh, gastric reflux. You know, GERD, we talked about acid reflux and uh, erectile dysfunction is another big one that, that happens to these guys uh, when they get apnea. So get a CPAP. I've been saying over and over again, I just rewatched an interview with Mark Bell and Hofthor Bjornsson, uh, where he said the same thing. He said, that was the biggest change that I made when I worked with him is I nagged him and nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. And I think I even sent him a CPAP because uh, it's hard to get one. In, in a lot of the socialized medicine countries, you got to wait a long time. And then when they diagnose you, if you don't have severe apnea, they might not prescribe you a machine because they're expensive. So a lot of the guys that reach out to me from Europe and Australia and uh, Canada and other places, they have a hard time getting machines. Whereas here in the U.S., you can go on Craigslist and grab a machine. And Walmart.com sells the Dream Station. I link all of this in the program as well. I want people to be able to find these things. And so that's the big one. And then the three 10-minute walks. I've been doing those religiously. I used to do. I used to have a recumbent bike in my uh, hotel room when I was training with Mark Bell 12 years ago. And that's how I recovered from workouts. I would spin on that bike. I would do 40 seconds of a pretty fast spin on under modest tension with a 20 second rest. I would repeat that 10 times and I would do that three times a day. So it was 10 minutes, three times a day, a little hit session under tension, pumped a ton of blood into my legs. It was all concentric movement. So I wasn't doing any loading or damage, you know, any eccentric loading. Uh, and I had a dramatic improvement in my delayed onset muscle soreness. Hofdor implemented the same thing, put a bike in his garage, started biking after every meal. Uh, also, you know, by biking after the meal, it helps with um, uh, partitioning of nutrients. So the, the glucose uh, is pulled in by the muscles in the absence of the need of insulin. So uh, you find that, that that has a dramatic effect on being able to get uh, glucose stored in the muscles faster than if you were just to eat and sit. So those are the huge things for recovery. Um, I would just stop with those two and say that, that that's, you know, that th those two are king. Mm -hmm. Half the world must have been biking like 12 times a day. 
<laughs> he ate, he, he ate did about four meals a day. Yeah, he's got his workouts and, and that. So, uh, but at least four times a day he was doing consistently. Okay. Uh, That's a really good uh, – I've never actually heard that one, so that one's something that I could definitely implement as well. Um, so last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, so would you agree that – because you said the best diet is one that you can stick to. So would you agree that probably consistency overall, if we look at the bigger picture, is probably the most important aspect of any diet, just staying consistent with that diet overall? A hundred percent. And we know this too. We know that 95% of health benefits, reduction in blood pressure, reduction in blood sugar, decrease in cholesterol, uh, are realized simply from weight loss itself, irrespective of the diet. We've seen this in study after study of the McDonald's diet, of the 7-Eleven diet. It almost seems like it doesn't matter what somebody eats as long as they're losing weight. They're actually improving their metabolic health. The caveat being is long-term and whatever that is, 30, 90 days a year, uh, are you creating micronutrient deficiencies as we discussed with the bikini diet and potentially with the vegan diet? Uh, and secondarily, can you comply with a diet like that because highly processed foods tend not to be very satiating and you end up getting hungrier and maybe overeating. So that kind of would transition into the, the strategies that people use. Like some people will use a keto or an intermittent fast. Those are strategies. I don't see those as really diets unto themselves. Those are diet strategies that may help mitigate hunger uh, and reduce total caloric intake for some people. And uh, so those, that could be beneficial. So you're hundred percent right. Um, the best diet is the one you'll follow. And, and uh, so there's a lot of variation and I've recommended the carnivore diet to clients who present with autoimmune disorders or type two diabetes. I've, uh, I've certainly had many clients that have done uh, or are doing keto vegan as mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm not uh, too concerned really about what their preferences are. I just, I try and cover the big rocks, which is going to be calories first and foremost macros next protein being the most important of those, maybe a little meal timing for training. And then I, I'm really focused on satiety and energy. Uh, if they're overly hungry, they're not going to stick with the diet long-term. And if they're tired, they're not going to stick with the diet long-term. And so I use some strategies to mitigate, uh, hunger as we talked earlier and uh, energy, uh, by using a variety of, uh, of different foods, the high satiety foods. I, I might've mentioned that I think we didn't talk about the satiety index, which measures how long certain foods keep people full for, uh, the two highest satiety foods on the index is a potato and an orange. And so I use those in all my dieters' diets because it helps keep them full and it has the added benefit that they're both very high in potassium. And so, uh, and that helps with cravings as well. So I'm not saying that, that when you go on a diet, you won't be hungry. I'm saying that that is a very important uh, thing to address in terms of long-term compliance. So you better pay attention to the difference. You can manage hunger, but you're not gonna manage hanger for very long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's like, I feel like that's a big thing when you just start adding like, you know, whole foods in your diet, satiety, your satiation is just going to be way higher because you were just eating these processed foods that just digest super quickly and nothing broke down slowly. So once you start adding more fiber in it, once you start adding more micronutrient dense foods, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, um, that's when you're going to start, you know, feeling satiated, feeling full and being able to stick to a caloric deficit a little bit easier. 100%. And those are exactly the strategies that I use for, uh, for dieters is to increase their protein, to use a steak so they have to chew longer, uh, to use high satiety foods like the potato and the orange to increase their fiber intake, have them drink more water with the meal and prior to the meal, uh, and then improve their sleep, which is huge for you know releasing ghrelin, which is the hormone, the hunger hormone. Uh, and also just the more hours you're awake in a day gives you more opportunity to get hungry again and eat. Uh, typically at that nighttime meal that really blows your entire diet. So those are all great strategies and you kind of need them all. Uh, it's really hard, you know, to diet. I don't think people appreciate it. I've, I've dieted down to, to probably 5% body fat many, many times over a 30 year period. I know what hunger and hanger feel like. I know what it's like to go to bed and dream in full color about food. And that's all you think about. <laughs> I get it. And I've also bulked up to over 300 pounds. And I know what it's like to have metabolic syndrome and to be fat and tired and have high blood pressure and blood sugar and bad cholesterol numbers. And uh, I've lived it. And so uh, that's why I'm so, uh, I think, uh, uh, motivated and, and excited to help people learn some of the mistakes that I made and, and uh, make it easier for them long term. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And Stan, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on here. Um, I hope a lot of people benefited from this because I think we covered topics that definitely people never really think about uh, once they approach a diet, because especially with the micronutrients, we went very, very in depth, uh, very specific on which micronutrients people might be deficient in and uh, how we can just overall help people's lifestyles and performance at the same time. So I just want to say thank you for hopping on here. I think we're just going to wrap it up. And uh, if any last few words you want to say, um, please go ahead. That's it, brother. Thank you, man. I've got a ton of free content on the internet, uh, uh, staneferting.com my website. I have my uh, video with uh, Hofthor Bjornsson up in Iceland. It has over 6 million views, a two-hour deep dive into the vertical diet. Uh, obviously, I have the ebook available at staneferting.com. Uh, at staneferting is my Instagram, and uh, I have a YouTube account, staneferting, and I've got dozens and dozens of uh, videos on there that talk about a lot of this stuff that are kind of fun, uh, the rants that I, that I do that uh, people really enjoy. So, there's a ton of great information out there. I just hope that people just keep uh, keep listening and learning and sharing with everyone else so that we can get better at this. Absolutely. And I'm at link, uh, Stan, I promise I'm going to link everything in the bio, so don't even worry about it. Your website, your Instagram, all that stuff. Great. Thank you, man. All I right. appreciate no it. Problem, man. Thank you for hopping on.